pray. Father, as we are gathered here today, uh, we do so recognizing that uh, this being the Lord's day, we are a people who are alive because our Savior first became and was raised from the dead, and he now gives us the power to live new lives, to change our hearts, to change our priorities, our ways of thinking, and really the whole focus and ambitions that we have in life. And so we pray, Father, that we might uh, think more clearly on what it means to be on mission for you and your kingdom, and we pray that you give us insight into how we can stay on mission as a church and as people that you have called into your name. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Just to back up, we've been looking through the book of Acts, and we have noticed that the book starts off with a small band of 11 apostles, and they are there being told by Jesus to wait in Jerusalem. They're to wait for the giving of the Holy Spirit. And if you know the flow of the book, you know that eventually they did wait, and the Holy Spirit was given on the day of Pentecost. And then you understand that the flowing of the book, the the actual plan of the book or the structure of the book of Acts follows the key verse of the book of Acts, which I would suggest to you is Acts chapter 1 verse 8. And that reads, you shall receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts, remotest parts of the earth. Now this is where we find the structure of the book, and we are now still in Jerusalem, but we're going to see very soon that the church is thriving there in Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, we know that this little infant church is expanding and doing quite well in terms of seeing the numbers just amazingly increase. However, after that time of dramatic growth, we read of a series of difficulties that arose. There were at least three attacks by the evil one. The first one we noticed in chapter 5 was internal corruption, in which we noticed that several of the members of the church lied not only to the Holy Spirit, but in so doing, they also were lying to the church leaders. They were disciplined by the Lord. Then there was a time of external opposition and persecution against that early church, in which, again, uh, it, it did not work. As a matter of fact, it turned uh, the exact opposite direction and made them even more bold, and the church continued to grow even more so. And then the adversary of God's people attempted one more strategy, and we come upon that here in chapter 6, a strategy to sideline the church, a strategy to bring about dissension within the church of Jesus Christ, and eventually to get them distracted onto other things and not keeping focus on being mission, on mission, as he says there be their witnesses of Christ to all the remotest parts of the earth. A situation that we read about in the early church, and we have to keep reminding ourselves this, was not idyllic. It was not idyllic, it was not a, a perfect problem-free free church. As a matter of fact, there were real struggles, there were real heartaches, There were real challenges. And like a flock of sheep, the church was vulnerable. Vulnerable to outside dangers, but also was involved in vulnerable to the internal dissension or disunity and disruption that happened within the church that would result in fragmenting this little flock of God 
and therefore leading them to fail to fulfill her mission. And that's why Jesus Christ had given to that church in its early years the apostles as their spiritual shepherds, providing oversight for the church so that it would stay on mission. And so we're coming upon this passage that shows how this works here in Acts chapter 6, verse 1. Let's follow together here and follow how this happened and unfolded. Acts 6, 1. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. And the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, Is it not desirable for us, it is not desirable for us, to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables? But select from among you, brethren, seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom, may we, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer, to the ministry of the word. And the statement found approval with the whole congregation. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, Timon, Permanus, Permanus, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying they laid their hands on them, and the word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Now again, I want to suggest that as we look through this text, there are, we can find at least three insights on what to expect on the internal dynamics of a church that is trying its best and seeking to be faithful to stay on mission to do the task that was given to them by God, to proclaim the gospel and live the gospel for Christ. Now let's look, first of all, uh, the church there in Jerusalem. And I'm going to suggest that the numbers in our minds ought to be, we ought to think of it as a church of about 10,000 plus many more people, at least 10,000 people or more. And it's actively involved in being a witness to Jesus Christ the Messiah in all those parts of Jerusalem and now in the surrounding areas of Jerusalem. And along with that witness ministry, clearly there is the ministry of compassion that is still being done at the same time among people who are needy among them. Among the thousands of the pilgrims that had made their way from the surrounding areas uh, around the Mediterranean Sea had gathered there in Jerusalem some months ago for Passover celebration, a number of them had remained behind. A number of them had come to faith in Christ. A number of them were financially uh, struggling in a very profound way. They were destitute. And included in that number were a number of widows, some of the most vulnerable people at that time uh, who were among the poor. And so we come upon this amazing description in this account thinking that I don't know why I have so many widows. Perhaps it's because people in their families now had sort of turned their back on them and say, we have nothing to do with you now that you're a follower of Jesus. It's unclear exactly why there were so many uh, in this particular church. But the members of the Jerusalem church knew that it's a priority that God wanted them to follow. 
to be sure to take care of those who were the poor. As a matter of fact, there are many scripture passages in the Hebrew scriptures, the Bible that they had at that time. And if you look in the 10th chapter of Deuteronomy, we come across one of the many passages in which God reminds them of the high value he places upon people who are poor, people who are destitute, people who have no one to care for them, the needy. He says this, this is Deuteronomy 10, verse 12. What does the Lord your God require from you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him. How do we do that? To serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your, your soul. And then he says, and God executes justice for the orphan and the widow and shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. There's another text in scripture that I think uh, came across in my devotional reading. Uh, before Joyce and I uh, recline and sleep at night, we read, uh, we're reading right now through a book by Tim Keller called The Songs of Jesus. And it has a little section of the Psalms, and so you read one of those. And uh, the other night, just like two or three nights ago, we read Psalm 68, verse 5, where we find a father of the fatherless and a judge for the widows is God in his holy habitation. Psalm 68, verse 5. Very interesting to read the comments that Keller makes on this. He says this, In this world, what often happens is the strong eat the weak, quote-unquote. That's what the saying says. He says, But God's strength is seen in His care for the weak. And so the church should be famous for sacrificially loving the poor and the marginalized. This reflects the gospel itself. For God does not call people to earn salvation by strength. He came in weakness to die for us, to save only those who admit their spiritual helplessness. And so the thought of the gospel was very much in the minds of these early believers. They realized how much they were helpless and desperately needed Christ to save them because Paul later went on to write that you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Not rich in finances and having money in some bank somewhere. It is rich in the wealth of spiritual blessings in Christ. And so this church began to practice this kind of compassionate gospel-centered care for these widows, the most vulnerable members of their society. It was woven into the fabric of the early church. As a matter of fact, if you look at 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul in his instructions to, to Timothy as the uh, overseer of the Ephesian church, he, he devotes almost an entire chapter to instructing Timothy about what's the proper way to care for and carry out relief ministries for the widows in his church. And then in James chapter 1, we read of, again, this emphasis on widows. He says, This is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father to visit orphans and widows in their distress. This is the pattern of the scriptures and of the early church. And so the church was doing this. That's a great thing. 
And the women of, of that particular time, they were in great distress. Why? Because there was no social security system. They, there was no one really in place. Probably all their family members had abandoned them. They're, they're left with no income. They're, on, they're looking for daily food. Think about that. Daily food. So the church in Jerusalem was actively involved in this ministry. We've seen earlier that uh, at the end of uh, chapter 4, people were bringing generous gifts. They were selling property. They were bringing gifts, laying them down before the apostles so it could be distributed among those who ever had need. Commendable. Noteworthy. People were donating funds. They were donating food. Awesome. However, there's a problem. And the problem is that the apostles began to hear concerns. The apostles began to hear complaints. The apostles began to hear that there's a problem among a certain group within the church. And so apparently some resentment had begun to build up over time between this particular group and another group within the church. One group was made up of people who had grown up in Judaism. They were very much people fluent in Aramaic and Hebrew, and they were very much comfortable with practicing their Jewish faith pretty much all their life. There was another group, however, that had recently been added to this group, people who likely had traveled from outside of Jerusalem, and they had recently become Christians. These are people who now uh, are learning perhaps Aramaic, but they speak other. They speak primarily Greek. They're from other parts of the Mediterranean world. So you have the Hebrews that were native Judaism, people who grew up as Jews. Then you have the Hellenists, the people who spoke Greek. And it's this latter group, the new converts, the people who didn't necessarily speak uh, the Hebrew tongue, some of their widows they felt like were being overlooked in the daily serving of this food. Now it may sound rather simplistic, but I believe it's crucial to bear in mind that a church that hopes to stay on mission with the gospel needs to be prepared in our minds and our hearts to know that what? Point number one, you're going to run into messy ministry situations. Why is that? Because we're dealing with people. It is not like clockwork where things just work without any kind of difficulty or problems or challenges. No, the poor were receiving practical daily assistance. There was an effort to go and make sure that these needs were being met. But the church, as it was carrying out these priorities of God and sharing with those in need, it was doing the right things. But even doing the right things sometimes can create problems if the people who are being helped perceive that that ministry is being carried out in a way that's not fair. They were beginning to detect that there's some favoritism perhaps going on here. Whether it actually was or not, we can't really tell, but that was the way they perceived it. And it's not too surprising when you have two groups of people who have vastly different cultural backgrounds. They, they think differently. They have different priorities, maybe in terms of their cultural bias. They become blind at times to the ways in which people who are different from them perceive the same actions. And so there are members of the body of Christ, perhaps, who were rather 
offended, who were rather hurt by these particular actions, even though perhaps they were well-intended. We might say that the problem was not just a logistical problem, which could have been solved just by better administration. There's something else going on here. What's more needed at this moment is for the wise application of gospel insight and love and patience and being sensitive to the needs of other people to make sure those things were all being addressed in a way that gained the trust and confidence of God's people. So here's one of the principles that I drive, derive from this text of Scripture, and that's this. This is nothing profound, but this is, to me, pretty obvious, that little problems, if not addressed and resolved, do what? They can grow up to be big problems. Certainly I've learned that in the last couple of years. Little problems, if not addressed and resolved, can grow into big, big problems. If not corrected, this little small issue can escalate. It becomes a widespread problem, negatively impacting the church's effectiveness in being on mission with the gospel. I came across the, uh, a brief paragraph by Kent Hughes, who is the former pastor of Wheaton uh, Bible Church, I believe it was, years, for many years, he's now retired. He said this, Countless works of God have been destroyed in a way in which God will bless the work initially. Souls come to Christ. The church reaches out to the community. Missionaries are sent out. And then someone complains that he or she is not appreciated, that he or she is being neglected. And perhaps this comes in the form of a critical glance. Maybe the name that has been forgotten, a social gaffe, or some imagined offense. Bitter dissension ignites and spreads, and the whole work of Christ goes up in flames. See, I think this kind of situation that was unfolding there in the church of Jerusalem was one that they needed to identify and think about what is the significance of this particular problem. They need to sit down and always think to ourselves, when that is going on, when there is a problem within the church, guess what we need to do? We need to make that problem known. It needs to be vocalized. It needs to be explained. It needs to be uh, bring people into awareness. And so clearly I would think it's very important for us as members of God's family and also in the members of your own family if you have a legitimate concern, if there's something that's not being handled appropriately, if there is a situation that needs to be addressed, by all means, first of all, pray about it. Ask God to help turn the situation into an, an opportunity in which there can be greater ministry here, greater effectiveness in ministry, that the name of Christ will be honored as we work through this so that we can make sure that we are still focused on doing what God calls us to do, to love each other and to make the gospel known. And then, having prayed about it, make the concern known. Have it be made known to those who are given, God-given God responsibility before God to handle the situation. Make sure that it is voiced, it is heard, it is brought to their attention. Point number two leads us to another thought here about Sadly, not everyone does that. 
And sometimes when people bring up problems, they handle them in ways that actually make things much worse. I came across some listing here of some poor responses on the part of some churches. I don't think I have our church in mind here. I'm talking about now. This is a list I got from uh, James Boyce, uh, who used to be at 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. He's, he, he raises the question, how do we respond to ministry in the local church when that ministry misfires, when things are not exactly running smoothly and there's some problems and issues? And how do we as a church respond? And he says, well, some churches sadly react in ways that undermine the gospel. And he lists several of these. Some churches have been known to throw those people out who bring the complaint forward. Well, that's not a very loving response, is it? Other churches will shun those who think or act differently than the majority. Some churches will ignore the people who have a complaint or concern and just sort of can't be bothered with it. Some churches will outvote the dissenters so that they have the philosophy that says, well, the 51%, God is speaking through that 51%, you know, the majority rules, and just dismiss it if there's a problem with anybody else. And sadly, some will separate themselves out. They'll start another church. And sadly, some will form a committee, <laughs> says Boyce, and they'll do nothing. So these are all ways in which are not helpful responses. But I would suggest to us that what we need to do here, point number two, a church that stays on mission, that hopes to stay on mission, is going to be a committed to resolving those problems so that the gospel values will prevail. Solve problems so that gospel values prevail. Every local church that's committed to staying on mission clearly needs to keep asking God for wise leaders. Because every local church needs to have godly shepherds who oversee the affairs of the church. Now when I say oversee, I do not intend to mean that we need to have godly leaders who actually take over all aspects of the church. I don't mean to suggest that overseers are people who are to take on all the ministries of the local church. But I do think that it would be important that they supervise or that they guide all of those aspects of the church. And rather than sweeping the problem under the carpet or alienating people who brought forward the complaint, notice what the church did there. The apostles brought together the membership. They brought the church together, which is why it's so important that our members attend our member meetings. We believe that you have a voice and a concerned and to be a part of these decisions that are going on within the church life. And so the apostles bring in the members and they come up with a plan to address the problem. They sought to solve the problem by delegating the ministry, all these responsibilities associated with this particular um, daily relief given to widows and those truly in need. They wanted to give it to a select group of their own members. And so they asked and urged the church to select seven men who could then apply themselves to this. And these men had to be reputable, spiritual-minded, wise men to handle this responsibility. Put them in charge once they've been selected and give them the responsibility of making sure this is handled as a benevolent ministry to these widows. And so what did the church do? They selected 
seven men. And I don't know about you, but uh, I've read, and this is, I guess I'm told, that the significance of all these names they have listed here are that all of these seven have Greek names, names that are Greek in their background. So clearly the church is trying to respond, and the members of the church to say, you know, we want to make sure that we have not only people who are capable, people who are reliable, people who are great, uh, upright character, spiritually minded, but they also are people who are going to be clearly concerned about what's going on here of the vested interest of those who felt like they were being overlooked. What is the biblical pattern here? Well, one of the things we notice in this text and what the church sought to do in order to keep the church on mission so it doesn't get sidetracked and become ineffective is to notice that we don't want to have one person or one board handling all the ministries of a growing church. In order to stay on mission, a church needs and must have and insist on plurality of leadership. There's no such thing as a one-man show in the church of Jesus Christ. The apostles were 12 strong. They had replaced that one, you remember, in the first chapter of Acts. And a church that's run by one person who wields most, if not all, of the church's authority is not following the pattern laid down in the Scriptures. Over and over again, I won't take time to reread the passage that Keith read for us in Exodus chapter 18, but the principle was very clear that Moses couldn't handle all that. He needed help, he needed assistance, so others were recruited and selected and put in responsible positions. If you go into the Gospels, what do we have? We have Jesus investing three years into the life of those men that he selected, and he's giving them responsibilities and training and giving them uh, uh, preparation for them to become those as a plurality of leaders to oversee the initial launching of the church of Jesus Christ. And then if you read in Acts chapter 14, as the church launches out with Paul and Barnabas, and they're actually planting churches now in, in, uh, in uh, Asia Minor and different places, we read in Acts 14, verse 23, that they made a point to appoint multiple elders, plural, in every church singular. There are many churches that have one elder and they have many deacons underneath that one elder. But it's interesting how Paul and Barnabas, their philosophy was appoint at multiple elders, plural, in every church singular. That's Acts 14, 23. When Paul wrote to members of the church in Philippi, at the first opening words of that letter to the church in Philippi, what does he say? He says, I'm going to send greetings to the elders, plural, and the deacons, plural. It's a shared leadership is the pattern of the early church. And the selection of these spiritually mature men in Acts 6 is really the prototype for our deacons in today's world. These are men who served together to ensure that the needs of God's people were being met in ways that unified the church, that honored the Lord, and kept the goal of gospel mission at the core of the life of that collection of believers. I find it interesting that the apostles refused to be drawn into all of the logistical details of this food distribution and on the waiting of tables. And probably there was some money involved there too because they were given money. And so they were initially the ones who had received the money, but they're trying to distribute that out appropriately. 
And notice that they attempted to concentrate primarily on their calling. And what was their calling? How did they see it? Did you catch that in verse 4? Their primary calling was prayer and the ministry of the word. See, the apostles wisely refused to be drawn away from their God-given role of devoting themselves to the equipping of God's people so that they would do the work of the ministry, so that they could be on mission for God every day. For this to properly take place, you have to have a plurality of leaders who are committed to prayer on a regular basis and the teaching and preaching and application of the word on a regular basis. And I must say, I and the elders have tried to not micromanage the ministries of our church. We've not tried to make sure we have our fingers in every little tiny thing that's done. We try to give people opportunities to handle things in the way they think is wise and appropriate, encourage them in doing that, and to keep praying that God will raise up people who have a burden and vision for various ministries, and we like to see those people launched to do what they're doing. And that's what we've tried to do here. And that continues to be, I think, a biblical pattern is to help feed the flock and then the flock begins to carry out the truth of God, plugging there into their lives and then taking it and sharing it with others in various ministries through the local church. That leads us now to our third point. And stay with me because it really does end on a wonderful note here, verse 7. A church that stays on mission will expand within and beyond her membership. Verse 7, the word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the truth. What a great summary. What a great result from following God's pattern in the local church to stay on mission. Here these impoverished members were being fed daily. It was being done in a way which the confidence and the trust was regained. And God was honored as we sought to help the people who truly were in need. And at the same time, the souls of God's people were being fed nourishment from the Word of God on a regular basis. And the mission of the church is never just ministering to the physical needs of the poor. We must see that that's clearly what is this text is trying to help us understand. Is it is the word of God that kept on spreading. And so we know that benevolent ministry is important. It is valuable. It is indeed part of what it means to love people. But it's not the only part of ministry. It's essential to express that love to those in need. But the church, to be on mission, must be faithful in teaching and preaching and declaring what the Scripture says and the word of God. And prayerfully sowing the word brings about a wonderful harvest of good works, gospel ministry, and godly living. I think about this church and the large numbers they had, of course, but it's interesting as you look at these list of the names of the men who were selected, you don't have to read very far forward in the book of Acts to realize that these men were faithful with that initial ministry. They served well there as men of character, men of reliability. And why is that important? Well, look what happened to Judas. Judas was one of the 12, and what would he do? He was a man who held the bank bag, as it were. He held the, the, the checking account, and he was a person who was 
looking like he was faithfully doing, but meanwhile he was pilfering. He was stealing some of that for himself. And so it's very important, of course, that we find people who are faithful and who are, uh, have high standards of their character and honesty and those kind of things, of course. But notice how the two of the men who served waiting tables proved themselves to be men who were of integrity, men who are of the word, men who truly cared about the body of Christ and the sake of God's glory and for the gospel. And they went on to pursue powerful ministries beyond Jerusalem. I'm sure you know one of them. It's Stephen. Stephen was one who had an opportunity to boldly proclaim the word of God and did so in such a way in which the reaction to what he had to say was so infuriating to his audience, he actually lost his life as a result. They stoned him. And here was the apostle, uh, here was Saul, who was, who was to become the apostle Paul, is there witnessing that terrible injustice in taking of his life. Stephen spoke the word boldly, but so did Philip. As Philip then went on to be the first person to bring the gospel to what? To the, one of the biggest hurdles the gospel needed to get over in order to show the power of the gospel to make and change people's hearts and lives. And that was, it had to move from Jerusalem to Judea and then to go to the Samaritans. People who were hated by the Jews and the Samaritans hated the Jews. There was lots of racial animosity between these two groups. And it is Philip who says, I have such a compassion for these people who are different than I was. And showing practical care, now I'm going to take the gospel into their world and help them understand the glories of Christ. And sure enough, in Acts chapter 8, that's what he did. And even the Jewish priests in that area of Jerusalem, and there were many, many priests at that time, they were coming to faith in obedience to the call to believe. And I've been thinking about our church over the years, and I've been thinking about years ago, there was a guy who used to sit up here in the sound booth, even before it had a central board here, it was up in the corner, a guy named Peter Wolfing. Lived right close by in Lake Grove right here, worked for his father in a, some technology startup company, a very smart fellow in terms of technology and all kinds of uh, computer things. But what we noticed in Peter was a willingness to serve. Peter would do anything for you, and he enjoyed doing it, and he did it without looking for any kind of applause or accolades. And if you know Peter's story, it's amazing how he went from a person who was serving the Lord faithfully here as a deacon, he ended up connecting with some other fellow missionaries, the Hutters, who came here, who worked with SIL, and translating the scriptures all around the world. And so they challenged him, why don't you go and take your skill and consider the possibility God could use people like you. We need people like you to serve and help translators do what they do. And sure enough, Peter took those steps and went through times of training. And where is he now? He's in Oaxaca, Mexico, serving the translators who are bringing the word of God to the peoples there, in all sorts of different languages spoken among the folks there in Mexico. And he is faithfully serving Christ, making a huge difference far beyond the confines of Lake Grove. Why? because he's still on mission for Christ. And that's what God calls us to do. No matter where you are, no matter who you're interacting with, no matter where God's placed you, we are all called to be on mission for Christ. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you that as we've gone through this passage of your word, that we've been reminded once again that the gospel does not come to people who are rich in good deeds, people who are rich in righteousness, who have their act together, who are better than other people. But we thank you that the gospel comes to those of us who are willing to admit that we are helpless and desperate and have nothing to offer you to atone for our sins. We thank you that our Lord Jesus taught us what service and ministry is all about, the laying down of his life. We thank you that he who is rich became poor so that we who are poor might become rich in him, rich in his righteousness, rich in his forgiveness. Lord, we thank you for the reminder that those whom you have shown this kind of enrichment, enriching grace, that we have been given the privilege of being on on ministry, to be given opportunities to be serving you wherever we are, among our own families, among our neighbors, among our co-workers, among our fellow students. Lord, we pray that you would help us to, as a church, not get sidetracked from being effective as people who are on mission for the gospel. Help us to live out the gospel with each other, Help us, Lord, to deal with whatever concerns that are facing us and to do so in ways in which we listen to each other and make them known in ways that are appropriate. And Father, we pray that you would continue to give wisdom to those of us who are leaders here, that we might be wise and understanding and that we might be faithful in the things that you've called us to, to pray over this church, to keep teaching the word, and to see you work through us for the glory of your name. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.